afternoon. Welcome back from lunch. Uh, welcome also to all of you who are just now joining us. And welcome also to our C-SPAN audience. Um, this is the um, second uh, panel on this, the 11th of Cato Institute's Constitution Day Conference. Our second panel takes up the court's treatment of the right uh, the founding generation took to be fundamental, the right to property. Indeed, in his famous essay entitled Property in the 1792 National Gazette, James Madison, the principal author of the Constitution, wrote that, and I quote, as a man is said to have a right to his property, he may be equally said to have a property in his rights, thus echoing John Locke's famous reduction of rights to property, broadly understood, as he put it, as lives, liberties, and estates. Today, of course, property rights are treated, as Chief Justice Rehnquist famously put it, like poor relations in the Bill of Rights, and in three main ways. First, when property is taken through the power of eminent domain, it often is not for a public use, and rarely does the owner receive just compensation as required by the Fifth Amendment of the Takings Clause, the, the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Second, and far worse, when government regulators take otherwise legitimate uses of property in order to uh, protect the rights of others, not to protect the rights of others, but to provide the public with various goods like lovely views or wildlife habitat, leaving the all but empty title with the owner, rarely does it pay the owner compensation for the losses he suffers through such regulatory takings, as they are called. And finally, the procedural hurdles owners have to overcome when they try to vindicate their rights are often draconian, uh, ranging from interminable permit delays, during which time nothing can be done with the property, to so-called Williamson County problems, the Tucker Act shuffle, and much more, all of which can exhaust an owner physically and financially, as government regulators understand only too well. In fact, we begin today's discussion with one of those procedural hurdles as it arose last term in the case of Sackett v. EPA. And here to start us off is the man who successfully argued the case before the Supreme Court, Damien Schiff. Uh, I'm going to introduce our speakers, each one, before he speaks, starting with Damien, of course. Damien is a principal attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation, where he's worked on a number of cases involving Endangered Species Act and the Clean Water Act. He's a magna cum laude graduate of both uh, Georgetown University and the University of San Diego School of Law, after which he clerked for Judge Victor Wolski on the U.S. Uh, Court of Federal Claims. Among the several environmental cases Damien has litigated is Barnum Timber Company v. EPA, where the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals held that landowners did have a right to challenge environmental regulations that reduced their property values. Like other of our panelists today, Damien has published widely and has made numerous radio and TV appearances. So please welcome Damien Schiff. Thank you, Roger, for that kind introduction. And uh, thank you to the Cato Institute for having me here today to talk about a case whose facts uh, Justice Alito from the bench at oral argument 
this past January remarked that if those facts were related to the average American homeowner, that homeowner would say, how can something like this happen in the United States? Mike and Chantel Sackett are Idaho landowners. They bought in 2005 a half-acre parcel of land in Priest Lake, Idaho, on which they planned to build their dream home. They obtained all the necessary building permits, and they started construction of their home in the spring of 2007 by putting onto their lot a bit of gravel. Three days after that, EPA and Army Corps of Engineer agents came onto their property and told them that they had to stop building their, their dream home because they were violating the Clean Water Act. When the Sacketts asked EPA and the Corps to provide some sort of written explanation as to why they needed a federal permit to build their home, they were given that explanation in the form of a compliance order issued by EPA under the authority of the Clean Water Act. And this compliance order charged the Sacketts with having violated the Clean Water Act, required them to immediately restore their property to its alleged pre-disturbance wetland status, and make available to EPA at any moment access to their property and to their business records. And if the Sacketts did not comply with this order, they were threatened with, at that time, civil fines of up to $32,500 per day. The Sacketts came to Pacific Legal Foundation. We filed a lawsuit on their behalf, challenging the fact that this compliance order was uh, illegal, that there are no wetlands on the Sacketts' property. Therefore, they don't need a permit to build their home under the Clean Water Act. The District Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on appeal held that the Sacketts had no right to file their lawsuit challenging EPA for this exercise for this abuse of authority on the grounds that the Congress, when it enacted the Clean Water Act, never intended property owners to have the right to sue when they receive a compliance order. And the Ninth Circuit said that, well, and this doesn't really violate the Sackett's due process rights either because the Sackett's can always apply for a wetlands fill permit or they can just simply ignore the order. And EPA can only do bad things to the Sackett's once they bring a lawsuit in federal court to enforce their compliance order. And until that happens, the Sacketts can just simply blithely ignore the order and not worry about their mounting civil and potential criminal liability. The Sacketts unsuccessfully sought review in the Supreme Court, and in March of this year, the court ruled 9-0 that the Sacketts do have a right to challenge their compliance order under the Administrative Procedure Act. The decision, I think, is an important one for property rights and for individual liberties generally in assuring that when a property owner, when anyone is injured adversely by agency action, he can have a right to his day in court to defend himself. And I think the Sackett decision will be an important one, not just for how the Clean Water Act is administered, but also for how administrative law generally operates. First of all, I think the SAC decision under the Clean Water Act will mean that there will be fewer compliance orders issued. I think it's fair to say that before the SAC decision, when EPA knew that it could issue one of these orders, putting landowners under significant threat of tremendous financial civil liability, and knowing that they could never be held into court to account for having issued this order, I think that made the agency very brazen. It knew that there was no judicial check, therefore it didn't need to worry about whether, in fact, there were wetlands on the property, whether in fact there had been a violation of the law. Now, of course, with the threat of being hailed into court, I think that means that the agency will be a little uh, more modest in the use of its, of its enforcement capability. I think also 
that when EPA does issue these compliance orders, I think we'll find that they'll be backed by significantly stronger records. The remarkable thing is that the Sacketts have been unable to use their property for the last seven years, and yet EPA has never filed in court any of the public documents showing why they believe that the Sacketts have wetlands on their property. And that's remarkable because notwithstanding the fact that the Sacketts have never seen any evidence of their wrongdoing, they nevertheless have been unable to use their property for going on seven years. Now I think with the Sackett decision, EPA won't be able to do that. Not only will it have to, to convey its record to the compliance order recipient, but more importantly, the EPA will have to do its homework before issuing these orders. That it can't rely upon the fact that the uh, regulated public has no means of enforcing its rights when it believes that the agency has gone too far. I think also we've already seen uh, one benefit of the Sackett decision in lawsuits that have been filed in federal district courts throughout the country since Sackett was decided, challenging EPA's assertion of authority through other compliance orders. And I think that will continue to be a, a, a beneficial effect of the decision in ensuring that when the agency does exceed its authority, there will be some judicial check on that abuse. Finally, I would say that, that at least as far as the Clean Water Act goes, Sackett may portend a general uh, expansion of the availability of judicial review for other types of actions that either the EPA or the Army Corps of Engineers take under the Clean Water Act. For example, the Army Corps issues what are called jurisdictional determinations, which are decisions from the agency saying that it believes that there are wetlands on the property that it can regulate and therefore require a permit for filling them. Lower courts have until now said that those are not judicially reviewable. I think that uh, with the SAC decision, that rule of law may merit revisiting. But beyond the, the Clean Water Act, I think that, that Sackett may portend something much more significant for administrative law generally. With the Administrative Procedure Act, you have a codification of the general presumption in favor of judicial review, meaning that Congress has to be quite clear when it enacts a law that it does not want the regulated public to have an opportunity to seek judicial review when adversely affected by agency action. And until the 1980s, that presumption was fairly strong in the Supreme Court case law. Clear and convincing evidence was what was cited as needed to show that the courthouse doors were closed to folks who were injured by agency action. Then beginning in the, in the early 1980s, the Supreme Court sort of uh, walked away from that strong presumption and instead said, well, it's not really clear and convincing evidence. It's more that if we can fairly discern within the statutory scheme a desire to cut off judicial review, then that's enough to cut off judicial review. And it was, in fact, that, that lesson standard that allowed the lower courts for the last 20 years to rule that folks like the Sacketts did not have an opportunity for judicial review, that Congress uh, did not want landowners to have the opportunity to sue when receiving one of these compliance orders. I think Sackett may signal, in some respects, a uh, re-strengthening of the presumption in favor of judicial review, not just in the Clean Water Act, not just in uh, the environmental context, but generally speaking, in the administrative law context generally, that when one is injured by agency action, by final agency action, there is a strong presumption that one should be able to seek judicial review in a court of law. It is interesting, though, as I mentioned, with the lower courts having ruled against the position that the SAC has advocated, it is interesting 
how the lower courts could have got this issue so wrong for so long. As I mentioned, it was a unanimous decision finding that the Sacketts do have a right of judicial review. And yet, when the Ninth Circuit ruled against the Sacketts last year, the Ninth Circuit was not going out on a limb. One of the few times in an environmental case where the Ninth Circuit is essentially doing what everybody else was doing. All lower circuit courts who have addressed this issue before it went up to the Supreme Court in the SAC decision had ruled against property owners. And I find it interesting to, to think, oh, how is it that the courts could have got something so fundamental, so wrong, something that even the court's more liberal wing thought was, uh, was atrocious? And I think there are a few, a few reasons for that. First of all, I think um, perhaps the, the political reason for why that is so is that the lower courts and the other cases were presented with ugly fact patterns or with plaintiffs who are not particularly attractive, mining companies or developers, rather than plaintiffs like the Sacketts who are simply hardworking Americans who want to build their family home and are told that they need a federal permit that could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars just to do that just to build their family home. I think that fact pattern was essential not only to the court taking up the Sackett decision after 20 years of adverse and unanimously adverse precedent in the lower courts, but it was also essential to the Supreme Court ruling 9-0 in favor of the Sacketts. And in, in avoiding turning the case into a question of, is this for or against the environment? It rather developed into, more appropriately, something that prescinds from environmental law and it's simply the question of when people are injured by agency action, should they have an adequate means for judicial review of indicating their due process rights? That was something that the court was looking for, and I think got it in Sackett, and I think is highlighted by the fact uh, that, uh, as I think Professor Adler will talk about later on this afternoon, about how the Supreme Court, just prior to granting cert in the Sackett case, denied cert in a case called GEV Jackson which raised a very similar question about judicial review of compliance orders under CERCLA, under the Superfund law. And there, the General Electric Company was making a very similar due process argument as the Sacketts were making. Uh, in, in fact, actually, while both our cert petition was pending and GE's cert petition was pending, we, in fact, submitted a letter to the court asking the court to consider our petition in conjunction with GE's, because we thought GE's might have a bit of a higher profile, and remarkably, cert was denied in GE and granted in our case. I think, again, that is in part because of who was seeking review. The Sackets, as opposed to General Electric Company, I think the, the court uh, appreciated the better fact pattern. What does Sackett say about EPA? Well, we've heard a lot about EPA in the news with greenhouse gas regulation, with uh, uh, mountaintop mining with the Clean Water Act, with all sorts of environmental issues where the agency seems to have a very ambitious understanding of its own authority and seems to be rather indifferent to how uh, it is perceived either in the media or how it is perceived by those that it regulates. Sackett, I think, shows that the agency's tin ear, so to speak, for PR can sometimes come back to haunt it because before the Supreme Court granted review, uh, EPA had taken a very hard line in litigation and had shown the Sacketts no quarter. And I think fully expecting that the Sacketts would never be able to get beyond the Ninth Circuit. And yet, uh, they were, and they successfully defeated EPA. And one hopes, therefore, that one of the non-legal effects, but nevertheless beneficial effects, of the Sackett decision will be that EPA might, in fact, take a bit more modest understanding of its own authority, and particularly, to take a more sensible approach to its enforcement powers. 
when one thinks about the fact that EPA has spent so much time and effort in prosecuting the Sacketts, who simply put clean dirt on a half-acre lot in Idaho, and yet at the same time, presumably chose not to take enforcement action against other activities that allegedly would have a much more significant impact on the human environment. And so I think that the, um, that the decision will have, I hope, a beneficial effect on what EPA considers to be an appropriate exercise of its enforcement uh, discretion. Lastly, I would just like to, to make a, a comment about what I think this case means for the public interest law movement generally. At Pacific Legal Foundation, like many other uh, uh, pro-freedom groups in this country, we represent our clients for free. And I think that that fact is critical to how the Sackett case got to where it, it did get. First of all, the Sacketts didn't have the means to litigate this case to the Supreme Court. But even if they had, it would have made no economic sense to do so. I mean, they purchased their lot for $23,000. To litigate a case from the district court up to the Supreme Court costs hundreds of not thousands of dollars to do, and thus would have been an impossibility. And obviously, EPA and other federal agencies know that, agencies that are not constrained by man-hour limitations, by budgets, who can litigate landowners into the ground, so to speak, and bully them into compliance, even where there may be a valid claim, as was the case here with Sackett. And so I think this case is an encouragement to the public interest law movement that if you find a case with the right facts and a, and a good legal claim, then it may very well turn out successful, particularly, uh, particularly in my view, is the case uh, heartwarming in a sense because as I mentioned, every lower court to have addressed the issue before the Supreme Court finally took it up had ruled against the position of the Sacketts. And yet, nevertheless, the court did take it up and did rule in favor of freedom, did rule in favor of the Sacketts and the rights of landowners to vindicate those rights meaningfully in a court of law. I think that should give us all a great deal of hope that when we feel as if the, 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 the tilt of the law in the lower courts is going against property rights going against freedom, that, that does not necessarily mean that we should give up and that it's important to continue to fight for our positions in, in court and ultimately to be vindicated in the Supreme Court. So I, I want to thank again uh, Roger and the Cato Institute for having me here today, and I look forward to uh, questions afterwards. Thank you. Thank you, Damien. Um, and by the way, in this uh, year's Cato Supreme Court review, which those of us who are watching on C-SPAN can order at cato.org, you will find Damien's essay as well as an essay by our next speaker, Jonathan Adler, on the Sackett case. And Jonathan um, waxes more broadly on other property issues in the course of his essay. We're going to hear next from Jonathan Adler, who is a chaired professor of law and director of the Center for Business Law and Regulation at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law, where he teaches courses in environmental, administrative, and constitutional law. <clears throat> he is a magna cum laude graduate of Yale and a summa cum laude graduate of the George Mason University School of Law. He clerked uh, for um, uh, then, uh, or excuse me, now uh, uh, Chief Judge uh, David Santel on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. 
He's the author or editor of four books on environmental policy and over a dozen book chapters. He's a senior fellow at the Property and Environmental Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, and a regular contributor to the Volek Conspiracy, as well as a contributing editor to National Review Online. He's also a member of the editorial board of the Cato Supreme Court Review. In 2004, Professor Adler received the Paul M. Bator Award given annually by the Federalist Society to an academic under 40 for excellence in teaching, scholarship, and commitment to students. Please welcome Professor Jonathan Adler. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be be back at Cato. We've, we've heard a little bit about uh, the story of the Sacketts. And uh, if there's a bottom line to my uh, presentation today is that it really says something about the sorry state of property rights in the United States today that a case like Sackett is considered a major victory. It really illustrates the, the comment that Roger noted before that property rights are treated as the poor relation among those rights guaranteed by the Bill of Rights and under our Constitution. I don't mean to diminish anything that PLF did. This was an important case. Uh, what the Sacketts got uh, was certainly significant uh, after having to wait years after, just after the administrative compliance order was issued to finally get the right to have their day in court uh, is, is very important. Uh, but uh, that is all they got. They got the right to go to a federal court to challenge whether or not a federal agency had any authority whatsoever to subject them to any regulatory burdens whatsoever. The position of the federal government had been that they didn't have that right. That when they're, at a time when there are serious questions about the scope of federal regulatory authority under the Clean Water Act uh, and what the, what the regulatory authority over private lands is, that a landowner can be subjected to fines, can be subjected to fines that will increase daily, but has no right to go to court to merely answer the question, am I within the scope of this agency's jurisdiction? The court rested its conclusion purely on statutory grounds. Uh, but one of the things that I think attracted the court's uh, attention in, in the cert petition initially, perhaps certainly an issue that, that PLF had argued below, was that uh, this state of affairs, if it was what the Clean Water Act provided, would violate due process. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that when the court issued its opinion, other than its, in its recitation of the history of the case, it made no mention of the due process concerns, no mention of the constitutional questions that laid in the background. And as Damien noted, the court has also <clears throat> refused several recent invitations under various environmental statutes to consider uh, the scope of due process protections uh, in, in the regulatory state. And what I want to do briefly is focus on some of the due process concerns that the court avoided specifically in this case and then more broadly uh, in federal wetland regulation in particular. Uh, and I do this because I think there is a real due process problem uh, in much of the way federal regulations are implemented and enforced. And it's a problem that courts have uh, yet uh, to come to grips with. And it's the sort of problem that uh, we are going to increasingly see in other areas as well. Just for example, uh, several scholars have begun to look at uh, the due process implications of some of the authorities created by uh, the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act and find some very serious concerns if the law is to operate the way uh, it is written. Now, my contention about the Sackett case was had 
the Supreme Court concluded that the Clean Water Act did mean to preclude review of an administrative compliance order, that that would violate the due process guarantee of the Fifth Amendment that applies as against the federal government. The administrative compliance order was not simply a warning. It was not simply a letter telling the Sacketts, you're violating the law and you shouldn't do that because you could be subject to prosecution. It was an order that by, its own, by the terms of the act was itself a binding obligation, punishable by fines independent of those fines that could be uh, imposed for violating the act. At least as initially issued by the EPA, it imposed a lengthy set of specific uh, affirmative steps the Sacketts would have to take. They were not merely told to cease and desist. They were not merely told to remove the dirt they had placed. They were actually even told what sorts of plants they had to, plant, they had to restore on the property and at w what sort of spacing. They were given affirmative obligations. Uh, Damien mentioned some of the, the obligations in terms of access to their property and their records. They were required to inform any prospective purchaser of the property uh, of, of all of these things. Uh, there is, I think, little question that the administrative compliance order altered the rights and obligations of the Sacketts as property owners, that it infringed both their protected property and liberty interests. And we know under the Fifth Amendment that means they're entitled to due process. And if due process, as we usually say, means at the very least notice and an opportunity to be heard, uh, it has to be the case that at the very least, once this order is issued, they should have the ability, as a final agency action, they should have the ability uh, to go to court. But I think the due process concerns uh, in this context, and especially in, in the context of federal wetlands regulation, actually go much deeper. Because if we look at what due process requires, we typically talk about notice and opportunity to be heard as, as part of the process that is due. Uh, but we know that due process also requires some things that are even more fundamental. One of them being that any deprivation of liberty or property must be in accord with the law of the land, meaning that it must be duly authorized by the legislature. But we also know that individuals and, and the average person must have notice of what the law requires. And on both these measures, existing federal red, wetland regulations fail miserably. Uh, it is hard to argue that the regulations that the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers are uh, consistent with duly enacted laws, and certainly landowners like the Sacketts do not have anything approaching notice. Now, why would I make these claims? Uh, well, let's start with the, the source of authority to regulate private land under the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water Act, by its terms, bars the deposit of dredged or fill material into navigable waters. Clean Water Act defines navigable waters as waters of the United States. Now, the Army Corps and EPA have, for over 20 years, interpreted this to cover uh, all water bodies, interstate or otherwise, navigable or otherwise, and all wetlands that could affect interstate commerce. And for a period of time, even argued that this would cover all such lands that could be habitat for migratory birds something that was commonly referred to as the glancing goose test. What's interesting about the regulations that the Corps and the EPA enforce is that we know they cannot be enforced as written. The regulations that the EPA and Corps have promulgated purport to reach wetlands and waters that could affect interstate commerce. 
Well, we know under United States versus Lopez, decided in 1995, in court decisions since, that the Commerce Clause does not reach the mere potential of an effect on commerce. There must be a substantial effect on interstate commerce. The existing regulations don't require a substantial effect. In fact, they don't even require an actual effect. By their terms, they only require a potential effect. They reach far beyond the scope of the federal government's Commerce Clause authority. The Supreme Court has twice been asked to consider the application of these regulations to private landowners, one in a, once in a case called Swank, 2000, and another in a case called Rapanos. And in both cases, the court decided to interpret the Clean Water Act narrowly so as to keep it within constitutional bounds. And in both cases found the argument that the Army Corps of Engineers and EPA used for the assertion of authority to be wanting, to present serious constitutional problems, and therefore the court held uh, to not be within the scope of the Clean Water Act. And what have the agencies done in response to these decisions? For all practical purposes, nothing. They've issued some guidance documents that don't have the force of law, but they have not changed the regulations on the books, regulations that we know based on the Court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence, that we know based on the Supreme Court's own decisions in Swank and Rapanos, cannot be enforced as written. I think that is uh, the, at the heart of a serious due process problem that relates to, to the concern of notice, because one of the things we require, one of the things that, in fact, the Supreme Court reaffirmed just this past term in the Federal Communications versus Fox case is that notice requires, the notice portion of due process requires, the law must be sufficiently clear that men of common intelligence may be able to know what it is that is required or forbidden. Well, if all the statute says is, is that the federal government regulates the deposit of dredger fill material into waters, and the, and the regulations issued to implement that law cannot be enforced as written, how does an individual landowner have notice of what is required? When they receive an administrative compliance order from the EPA, how do they have, how do they have any basis to know whether the EPA is acting within its authority? This is not a situation that, say, that is like, say, when a landowner is, is, receives notice from a zoning board or some other local entity that clearly has jurisdiction over their authority, where the question will be, is what the zoning board is requiring or forbidding reasonable or consistent with its statutory authorization? In the context of federal, federal wetlands regulation, what is actually at issue is whether the federal government has any authority whatsoever to impose any burden on the private landowner. The Corps of Engineers and EPA are acting beyond the scope of the Clean Water Act, let alone beyond the scope of the Constitution. They have no authority to question or burden a private landowner's use of his or her land. And they can point to nothing that can give a private landowner an indication of whether their land is so burdened. Landowners like the Sacketts don't have notice because there are no clear regulations, let alone a clear statute, indicating whether or not they are subject to federal regulation. And that is a serious due process problem. It's a due process problem for Fox Television when it's going to be limited in what it can broadcast on the air, or a due process problem for a company like General Electric in another General Electric case from the DC Circuit that doesn't involve the First Amendment concerns the Fox case did. The DC Circuit made clear this is not a First Amendment rule. This is a due process rule. 
rule that, we, that, that, that individuals of common intelligence need to have some basis of knowing what the law requires before they can be penalized for failing to comply with the law. The last point I want to make is that when this case was accepted for cert, there was an effort to suggest that individuals like the Sacketts aren't entitled to raise these sorts of concerns because they are landowners who should have known better, who perhaps were even seeking to profit from uh, their landowning. And, and I don't know if that's true or not, and frankly, I don't care. Under our system, the guarantee of due process is not dependent upon one being innocent, it's not dependent upon one being nice, it's not dependent on one treating the environment with the level of respect that the EPA and the Corps of Engineers demand. Under our system of government, due process is something that is guaranteed to everyone. It is guaranteed to those who are detained at Guantanamo, to those who are arrested for the most heinous of crimes, surely it should be guaranteed to those who deposit some clean dirt on a plot of land upon which they wish to build a house. And I think it's utterly shameful that some of the activist groups that sought to comment on this case and filed an amicus brief in this case sought to suggest otherwise. Because I think it's quite clear in other contexts we recognize how pernicious the idea is that due process guarantees depend upon the individual who's being subject to government action. This case was important because it is important that landowners have their day in court, but I think it also highlights the need for federal courts to begin paying greater attention to the due process principles that are guaranteed under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, because there's a lot in the regulatory state that is inconsistent with those principles. And this is not a challenge to environmental protection. This is not a, a complaint about the goals that a lot of these statutes seek to pursue. It is a recognition that these goals, just like all the other goals our government pursues, must be undertaken and pursued in accordance with the principles that our Constitution guarantees. And hopefully after Sackett, uh, courts will begin to pay more attention to these concerns. Thank you. Thank you, John. We're now going to hear from Ilya Soman, who has written widely in the area of property rights as well as other areas. Uh, Ilya is a professor of law at the George Mason University Law School. His research focuses on constitutional law, property law, and the study of popular political participation and its implications for constitutional democracy. He currently serves as co-editor of the Supreme Court Economic Review, one of the country's top-rated law and economics journals. A summa cum laude graduate of Amherst College, uh, Ilya earned an MA in political science from Harvard University and a JD from the Yale Law School before clerking for Judge Jerry E. Smith of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. His writings have appeared in some of the nation's top law reviews as well as leading newspapers, and he too, like John, is a regular contributor to the Volokh Conspiracy. And like John, uh, Ilya was once a Cato intern. So those <laughs> Cato interns out there who are watching us, you too can some maybe one day become a professor of law, as other of our interns have done over the years. Today, Ilya is a Cato um, adjunct uh, scholar, and, um, and he continues in that capacity as well. So would you please welcome Professor Ilya Soman. Uh, 
I'd like to thank the Cato Institute for organizing this event and Roger for moderating and also to thank both of them for giving me that internship now 20 years ago. Uh, I'm not sure whether the prospect of becoming a law professor will increase or decrease future intern applications to Cato, but uh, I hope it's the former because it is, uh, generally speaking, a great job, uh, except when you have to grade papers. Uh, fortunately, that's not what we're doing here today. Uh, instead, my job will be twofold. I'm to talk about the PPL Montana versus Montana case, and then in the second half of my presentation, I'm going to step back a little bit more broadly and look at the general state of property rights at the Supreme Court uh, and what issues we might expect in the next few years, uh, although as the previous panelists have said, uh, the property rights at the Supreme Court, especially over the last decade, for the most part, have gotten very much second-class status. Uh, the court has been deeply divided over property rights issues, uh, and it's possible that some important developments are going to come down the road, uh, and things could change rapidly in one direction or another, uh, at least potentially. Uh, so first, uh, PPL Montana versus Montana. This is another relatively rare case where the Supreme Court unanimously decided, to some extent at least, in favor of property owners relative to the government. Uh, so this case arose from a situation where PPL Montana, which I'm just going to refer to as PPL from now on, they're a utility firm, a power company, and they were using three riverbeds in the state of Montana, in some cases going back all the way to the 1890s to generate power through hydroelectric dams and other means. Uh, and for all that time, they had been paying rent to the federal government for the use of these riverbeds on the assumption that the federal government was in fact the owner of the land. However, beginning several years ago, uh, as an outgrowth of a private lawsuit against a power company, the state of Montana suddenly began to assert, no, actually, we, not the federal government, are the owners of, this, uh, of these riverbeds. And therefore, they said PPL owed them uh, at least $41 million in back rent just for the period from 2000 to 2007, even though Montana had for uh, over a century never challenged this uh, uh, title. Uh, and Indeed, they had even helped PPL get federal regulatory permits for uh, cylinder operations. So there's a certain amount of chutzpah here on the part of the state coming back after 100 years saying, like, we actually owned this land all along, uh, all along and now you're going to pay us this huge amount of back rent. We didn't tell you for a century that we did, but now you know, so uh, pay up. Uh, so uh, the uh, crucial issue in Montana's argument, which, by the way, prevailed in the Supreme Court of Montana before it got to the federal Supreme Court, uh, is that uh, there's longstanding legal doctrine and Supreme Court precedent, which says that when a state joins the union, they acquire title to the riverbeds of navigable waters that are within the state's territory. And so Montana said, look, when Montana joined the union in 1889, uh, we got all this land. Uh, however, or all this riverbed uh, territory that was under uh, these waters. Uh, however, uh, as PPL pointed out, uh, much of the riverbed territory here actually is not navigable. What's really is the case is these rivers have some parts which are navigable uh, and other parts which are not. 
Uh, and so Montana's, uh, or rather PPL's contention was that essentially these large parts, which are not navigable uh, and which are where many of these hydroelectric dams are actually located, these are still owned by the federal government, which had owned the land before uh, it became a state when it was still just a federal territories. Uh, and essentially, the Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, sided with PPL on this. They said that the doctrine that applies here is that it's not that it's either all or all, it's not all or nothing, it's all of it is navigable. If some of it is, rather, they said that you have to look at individual segments, segment by segment, and particularly in a case like this where there are actually pretty large segments which are not navigable in one place and an area as long as 17 miles. Uh, the Montana Supreme Court, the lower court in this case, had also relied on the fact that some of these areas uh, are also subject to recreational use. That is, there are people who go and swim or fish in these areas, and that that's what's going on there today. Therefore, they said, well, this must mean that it's navigable. I think the federal Supreme Court quite rightly pointed out that what matters is not whether it's navigable today, but whether it was navigable back in 1889, which is when Montana became a state and would have acquired title to this area uh, if they acquired title to it at all. Uh, so uh, I, the, not all of the issues were fully decided here by the Supreme Court. Uh, a lot of the cases have been remanded back to the uh, lower courts for final decision, but it's been remanded under a set of rules which make it very likely uh, the PPL would win. Uh, now, uh, I guess the question you might ask is, if you're not the owner of a power company, you don't live in Montana, why should you care about this case? Uh, I think the answer is at least twofold. One is, as Jim Huffman points out in his excellent essay in the Cato Supreme Court review on this case, uh, there actually is a lot of land, particularly in the western states, which is subject to this doctrine that uh, the state governments can acquire title or acquire title to it potentially uh, when they became states. So as he points out, uh, there's potentially thousands or perhaps even hundreds of thousands of acres of other riverbed land and the like that other states could potentially try to seize on. As he puts it, there is potential rent seeking here that particularly when states find themselves short of money, they say, look, you know, uh, maybe there are some land claims that we overlooked over the last century. We can find this land and charge people back rent or the like uh, to engage in sort of the same kind of maneuver that the state of Montana tried to to engage in here. Uh, it also has potential implications for other cases involving the question of what counts as navigable water. As Jonathan pointed out, uh, there is some reason to believe that under the Commerce Clause, the limits of the federal government's jurisdiction over waterways are to some extent at least dependent on whether it's navigable. In this case, Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court is careful to distinguish between the two situations, the Commerce Clause uh, versus this doctrine of titles. He says, well, what's true for the one may not apply to the other. Nonetheless, there is at least some logical connection between the two. So it's possible there will be uh, some implications here in the future. We'll just have to see uh, how many. Uh, so I think this case is potentially important for property owners uh, and also for the federal government, uh, in particularly in the western states, where there's a lot of these kind of waterways and a lot of land that, of this type that was previously owned by the federal government, but uh, the state could have started a claim on it beginning uh, when they joined the union.
So now uh, for sort of the big picture sweeping even uh, bigger than the majestic waterways of our western states, uh, we're going to talk a little bit uh, in my final few minutes uh, about the overall state of property rights at the Supreme Court. I think overall the last decade uh, has not been a good one for property rights claimants in the Supreme Court despite occasional victories uh, like Sackett. Uh, the Supreme Court still has a tendency to treat property rights uh, at a very second-class way that is not applied to almost any other constitutional rights, uh, and there are several areas where this is true. Under the Takings Clause, uh, for example, the Takings Clause requires that you can only condemn property for a public use, but in the 2005 Kilo case and in some earlier cases, the Supreme Court essentially said that a public use is virtually any kind of conceivable public benefit. Uh, and in addition, the government doesn't even have to prove uh, that the public benefit will actually be achieved. Uh, the land taken in the Kilo case today, much of it is primarily used by feral cats uh, because uh, no, nothing has actually so far been built there. Uh, and that's in part because the government had no legal obligation to actually show that the economic development that supposedly justified the taking uh, would actually be produced. Uh, there's a similar uh, issue in the area of regulatory takings, which is the broad question of when government regulation uh, severely restricts your use of your property rights, uh, is there, can it rise to the level where it's a taking away of your property rights and therefore requires just compensation under the Fifth Amendment? Uh, generally speaking, the court has been very reluctant, in, especially in recent years, to rule in favor of property owners in this area. Uh, they have said that it's not automatically considered a taking unless it's either a permanent physical invasion of the property, actually occupy your land, or you permanently lose 100% of its value. So uh, if you lose only 98%, you may well be out of luck, or if you lose 100% for a long time but not permanently, you might be out of luck as well. Then the so-called Penn Central test will apply after a 1978 case, and to make a long story short, uh, under the Penn Central test, generally speaking, the government uh, tends to prevail. Uh, as we've already seen in the other presentations, uh, even under purely procedural questions, uh, often property rights uh, are given a second-class status uh, and not extended the same kind of procedural protections that we take for granted in other areas. For instance, in the San Remo Hotel case in 2005, the Supreme Court reaffirmed the idea that there is a very wide range of federal takings clause claims that you can't even get into federal court uh, no matter what you do. There is very few, if any, other federal constitutional rights where that's the case. In 2007, in Wilkie versus Robbins, uh, the Supreme Court ruled seven to two uh, that money damages often aren't available in takings clause claims uh, or in property rights cases, even uh, in situations where they would be available for violations of numerous other kinds of constitutional rights. Uh, so the overall picture is not a very positive one. There is the occasional victory like Sackett, but as you heard in the previous uh, pr presenters, this is a case with pretty extreme uh, facts. Uh, and even so, these kind of cases were actually being won by the federal government uh, in the lower courts. 
However, uh, the court is certainly not monolithic in its position on these issues, uh, and uh, it remains the case that it's closely divided on them. Kilo, for instance, was a close five to four decision. Some of these other uh, major cases over the last 10 years were close five to four decisions or six three decisions as well. So there is a lot of possibility for shifts in the next few years, depending on who's on the court and what kinds of issues come up. Uh, what sorts of issues uh, are likely to recur? Well, uh, in the public use area, even after Kilo, the court in Kilo indicated that while a public use can be almost any potential public benefit, still so-called pretextual takings are forbidden by the public use clause. Pretextual takings are one where the official public benefit rationale is just a pretext for some other kind of scheme, usually a scheme to benefit a private party. Uh, how do we know if there is a pretextual taking? Well, lower courts have been all over the map on this. There's at least three or four different tests that have been suggested. So sooner or later, the federal Supreme Court is going to have to take another case in this area. And if they do so, it's possible that they'll not only clarify what is a pretextual taking, but depending on what qualifies as one, one could see significant qualifications on the overall doctrine of Kilo uh, as well. There are also many regulatory uh, takings cases and issues that might come before the court. Indeed, there's one that's going to be before the court uh, in the coming term, uh, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission versus the United States, which deals with the question uh, of, uh, deals with several questions, but the big one is uh, if there was, in fact, a permanent physical damage or occupation to the property, but the government didn't intend to do it, the result of their actions was that it occurred, but they didn't intend it, uh, does the fact that they didn't intend it potentially let them off the hook? Uh, I think this is a an important issue, and there are several other issues that are involved in that case uh, as well. Uh, I think also sooner or later, uh, various issues relating to the Penn Central uh, doctrine or the Penn Central test will get back to the Supreme Court again. And depending on how things go, it's possible that that test could be tightened up and made somewhat less pro-government in the way that it's applied. Uh, in addition, uh, there are a number of procedural issues relating to property rights due process issues uh, that are likely to see their way back to the court. Uh, one big one that was already been to the court in the Alvarez case in 2009 is the issue of procedural due process rights with respect to asset forfeitures. Uh, in many states, even innocent property owners' property can be seized as part of a criminal investigation and asset forfeiture, and then the government holds on to the property, often for months or years at a time, uh, and makes it very hard for the completely innocent property owner to get their property back. Uh, the Supreme Court took a case uh, involving this three years ago, as I said, it then got kicked essentially on uh, technical procedural grounds without reaching the merits, but I think it's just a matter of time before this issue gets back to the court, uh, and there's actually a good chance the court will crack down on this to some extent. Uh, interestingly, uh, Justice Sotomayor, when she was a lower court judge on the Second Circuit, uh, she wrote an opinion in this area where uh, she pared back some of the more extreme practices of this kind uh, in New York, uh, and so it's possible that she would do the same thing at the, uh, at the Supreme Court level uh, if the issue comes back there, which I anticipate sooner or later it will, uh, because these sorts of practices, uh, unfortunately, are common uh, in many states. 
in thinking about which way these issues will go in the future, obviously a lot depends on who gets appointed to the Supreme Court over the next few years, if there are any resignations. Uh, but in addition, a lot depends on Chief Justice John Roberts, for whom not a lot is known about his positions on property rights. He did replace Chief Justice Rehnquist, who at least in the last 10 or 15 years of his tenure was pretty sympathetic to property rights claims, but there's some reason to believe that Roberts may be different from Rehnquist in this regard. Uh, in his Supreme Court confirmation hearings, he implied that maybe Kilo was correctly decided and that perhaps the protection of property owners uh, from abuse of this kind should be left to the political process. Moreover, when he was a lawyer at Hogan and Hartson, he actually represented the government in the very important Tahoe Sierra takings case, which said that there is not an automatic taking in a case where the owners lost 100% of the use of their land for as much as uh, six to 10 years or even more than that, because the court said, well, this is not a permanent taking or permanent loss of value, even though there was a good chance that the government could just renew their moratorium uh, on development. Now, when asked about this at his confirmation hearings, uh, Roberts understandably said, well, I was just a lawyer. I was doing my job. I was doing this to make a living, and that may well be true. Maybe it doesn't indicate anything about his true views. On the other hand, a person who is really strongly committed to uh, pro constitutional protection for property rights probably wouldn't have taken this case unless he really had to based on some pre-existing obligation or pre-existing relationship with the client, which of which there was no such thing uh, in this case. So I think there's some reason to worry about Roberts in this area. However, it may well be that uh, his views are not well developed yet and that uh, perhaps it will depend to some extent the type of case that is brought and uh, the particular facts. So I think ultimately, for, while for the moment property rights have a very much second class status at the Supreme Court, um, on many of the big issues, the court is very closely divided, and therefore there's a lot of room for potentially significant changes over the next few years, depending on what cases come up uh, and who's on the court uh, and which way the Chief Justice goes. Thank you. Thank you, Ilya. Uh, now, we'll have some discussion on the panel if there are any questions. Any? No, okay, then let's open it up to the audience. Would you please uh, raise your hand if you want to be called on? Identify yourself and any affiliation you have. Speak clearly into the microphone and um, ask a question. Uh, all the way up in the back there, we have someone. And please also identify which party you're addressing your question to. Thank you. My name is David Schneer. I'm with the American Tradition Institute. And uh, I'd like to uh, direct this at Mr. Schiff. Uh, I, I would uh, say, however, from the get-go, as a 33-year veteran of EPA and 10 years as an enforcement attorney there, um, that I would suggest that the dynamics within the agency are not as simplistic, perhaps, as you suggested. I would be the last person, having resigned from the agency for good cause, uh, to suggest the, the agency's position is defensible. But I will say that over the years, the discussion as to whether there was due process or not on administrative orders uh, was always a vibrant issue uh, and one that, we, uh, that had the effect of trying to settle, but that the culture in the environmental enforcement program is as jackbooted as it has ever been and perhaps more so than it should be. That notwithstanding, I wondered uh, 
why not pursue or do you intend to pursue uh, a, a regulatory takings with regard uh, to the Sackett's claim? It seems to me that that is a case where there is 100% taking and that uh, I have not seen a case built on the notion that a penalty could be a regulatory taking and strikes me as a, a vein that might be mined. That's, uh, it's interesting you should ask that question because uh, one of the last questions that I was asked at oral argument was from Justice Kennedy making that very question. Has there been a taking here? Uh, the Supreme Court in uh, 1985 case under the Clean Water Act ruled that a takings claim based upon Clean Water Act re regulation is not ripe until uh, an application for a permit has been made and denied. And so one could argue that because the Sacketts haven't applied for a permit, uh, that maybe they wouldn't even have a ripe claim. Also, too, even if they had applied for a permit, there is the concern that, um, that uh, Ilya was just talking about in the Tahoe uh, Sierra Preservation Council case, this idea that development moratoria are essentially exempt from takings clause implications. And uh, I could see the government arguing that, well, this, this is... Uh, not a, a permanent taking because we haven't actually adjudicated yet whether the government has regulatory authority over the property, and therefore uh, this is basically, uh, it's, it's the Sackett's fault because they could have been using their property anyway. It's not as if EPA has gendarmes on the lot that are keeping them from using it. And so there would be a lot of obstacles to a takings claim, but I will say that that is, uh, I think, um, uh, wouldn't be a frivolous claim. And if the Sacketts are not able to build their home, that's certainly something that they would consider. Yes, John. I just want to, um, on the issue of, of environmental enforcement, I think one thing that we should um, recognize is that even if one takes a very benign view of uh, the, the enforcement attitude in agencies like the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers, we should still recognize just the incentives that tools like ACOs give agencies. I mean, if you assume, again, assume, give, have the most, take the most benign view of, of an EPA enforcement official, what do they want to do? They want to protect as much as possible at the lowest cost to them. And so a tool that enables them to dramatically raise the stakes and, and threaten landowners with, with potential wipeout, economic wipeouts uh, on, with minimal process, ACO under the Clean Water Act can be issued on any information that, is, that comes to the agency's attention. They don't have to verify it. They don't have to subject it to any kind of hearing. And then all they do is effectively is send out a, an official letter. That's going to be attractive to even the most well-intentioned agency. And the whole reason we need due process protections is not merely because there may sometimes be an enforcement official that uh, is overzealous and, and pernicious. And we've certainly, I mean, there's my favorite from about 15 years ago was were, were the, the Corps of, of Engineers officials up in Maine that, that wrote in memos that they needed to squash a landowner like a bug to send a message and cool off development in the region. Um, but we don't have to assume that there are any enforcement agents like that to recognize that, that having a tool like an ACO that's not subject to judicial review creates really bad incentives even for really good bureaucrats and, and, and gives them incentives to do really bad things. And, and we need these procedural protections to protect even against that. Okay. Next question. Yes, over here, this lady. 
Thank you. Beth Melito with the National Federation of Independent Business Small Business Legal Center. And this is also for Mr. Schiff, too. First of all, congratulations and kudos to you and PLF for your victory in this. Um, my question relates to you, you alluded to the cost you know, to your clients in, in you know, seeing this claim through, the, you know, the emotional cost and also the financial cost, too, with taking something all the way up to the Supreme Court. Has there been any consideration or has PLF in the past, or are you aware, maybe this also applies to the other panelists, too, um, landowners successfully recovering attorney's fees in cases like this where they've had, you know, somewhat of a victory against an agency? Thank you. It, uh, it, it really depends upon the statute. I, at, at PLF, we have successfully recovered fees uh, under statutes like the Endangered Species Act that has um, an express uh, fee-shifting provision for cases brought under that law. The difficulty with, with the Sackett's uh, situation is that their lawsuit was brought under the Administrative Procedure Act, which doesn't have any fee-shifting pr provision. There is the Equal Access to Justice Act, uh, which is an interesting law because um, uh, it does allow some fee shifting against the federal government uh, for successful claims, but yet the law has come under some um, criticism from folks on the property rights side because of the of the sense that 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 law is used more often than not by environmental groups uh, who successfully sue uh, federal agencies for not regulating enough uh, than it is used by uh, private property owners who are having their ox scored, so to speak, by the government. Also, that law is difficult to recover fees under because even if you win, uh, the feds can still avoid paying attorneys' fees if they can show that um, their position was substantially justified. And, uh, of course, in the Sackett's case, given the state of the lower court uh, decisional law before the Supreme Court took up the case, it might be hard for them to do that. But generally speaking, it is very difficult for a landowner to seek uh, and obtain fees. And that is, unfortunately, one thing I believe that gives agencies more, uh, uh, emboldens their enforcement. Okay. Uh, up there in the back, please. This is a question addressed to Professor Hedler. Jim, uh, Jim Duholm, unaffiliated, addressed to uh, Professor Adler. As I recall, in the area of uh, in criminal law, uh, prosecutors don't have uh, absolute immunity, uh, but lose it if if they violate clearly established judicial rules. Now, if, as you suggested, the the uh, uh, EPA or or other uh, administrators have been ignoring uh, clearly established uh, Supreme Court precedent. Is it possible to uh, go after them for damages uh, personally? I don't. I don't. I, mean, I don't think so. I mean, the the, the problem with what they're do they've done is that they failed to issue new regulations. I mean, they would argue that in every individual enforcement action they take, they have gone through the case by case determination that. This, that the Supreme Court told them they had to do until such time as they issue new regulations. Um, and that's, you know, I think they would be able to argue that they've done that. The problem is, from a due process standpoint, is that that doesn't do anything for the landowner that wants to know, do I just deal with my state and local reg regulators or do I have to deal with the federal regulators too? Um, and the EPA's response will, or Corps of Engineers' response will often be, well, go hire some consultants and maybe they'll tell you. Um, and, unless, or up until the time when the agency is threatening something um, uh, uh, enforcement action or, or acting with an ACO. But I don't think there's the sort of 
malfeasance that would uh, uh, enable going after individual officials. Next question. Yes, right back there in the middle. Thank you. My name is John Small, and I'm with the law firm of Nassiman here in D.C. And it's a question that arose from this lady's question up front about the fees. I, I remember in law school learning about the Kilo case, Professor, when you had raised that up and was aghast and all the other things that I suspect some people in this room were also. But the, uh, the issue that struck me at the time was whether or not this, these individual landowners facing the daunting legal challenge and the long and painful expenses that were gonna come were right off, off the block, up against the wall. And then your experience, um, Mr. Schiff, led me to wonder whether or not there has been an argument in, the, in this context that simply those costs and that duration of time itself has ever been offered up itself as a species of taking, meaning the government makes this action, everybody knows it's gonna cost $100,000 or more and a lot of time, and that in and of itself creates grounds by which to challenge the action as effectively a taking because it would be an, an ill-advised economic decision, all other things being equal. So in the Kilo case, obviously there wasn't actually any question that there was a taking. The government admitted right off the bat that they were trying to condemn the property. The question was whether the taking was for a public use, right? So uh, whether it was for a purpose that's permissible uh, under the Constitution. Uh, it is true, however, that in Kilo and other cases of this kind, even if the property owner has a good legal case, often the cost and uh, not just financial, but also in terms of uncertainty and uh, psychological wear and tear and so forth is big enough to deter many property owners from fighting it. Uh, some of the defenders at a kilo taking, they said, well, only about the owners of 15 watts tried to contest the takings, whereas uh, there were owners of dozens of other watts that didn't try to contest them. And my answer is that many of those other people might have wanted to contest it, but they didn't want to put their lives on hold for several years to do so in a situation where you know, there was a good chance they weren't going to win anyways. So uh, I think this is a big problem. And it also, I think, undermines the contentions of some people who said, well, you don't need the substantive rules to protect people in these areas. You just need to make sure that people have access to due process and good procedures. I think due process is important, uh, but uh, at the same time, having lengthier and more complex procedures also increases the cost of litigating these case increases, how long it takes to get to the end. So I don't think procedure is a substitute for substance, especially since uh, at the end of the day, all the procedure in the world is only of limited use to you uh, if you're going to lose at the end anyway, right? Uh, I'd rather lose immediately if I'm going to lose than lose after a prolonged and expensive uh, legal battle. But you'd rather have that choice, right? I mean, I think I, I, I'm, again, I'm not against procedure. Uh, I'm just saying that we need substance too. I mean, mm -hmm. what, what is interesting is, is you know, so even set aside the takings claim, but a lot of folks argued in the, SAC, in the context of the Sackett case, plausibly under, under existing precedent, I think wrongly, but, but this wasn't a frivolous argument, that they hadn't been denied a, hadn't been denied a liberty or, or property interest that would trigger any due process protections at all. I think if one looks at what the actual content of the administrative compliance order and what uh, the way it put them at jeopardy, I think that that's a hard claim to maintain. Um, but um, courts and agencies are very reluctant to acknowledge that imposing burdens 
um, and, and threatening landowners with, with severe sanctions if they fail to comply uh, would trigger any due process protections, let alone uh, something that could become a taking. And, and that's, that's a concern. But wasn't the question whether if you prevail successfully in a takings case, whether the cost of doing so is itself a further taking? Was that not your question, sir? Okay. okay. Yeah. And I think Damien addressed that. It's a statutory matter, whether you are able to recoup the costs of of protecting your rights. I, I think so. I, I'm reminded of, of a case that we litigated at uh, PLF four or five years ago in the Federal Circuit dealing with uh, a taking under the Endangered Species Act. And uh, the argument there, our client uh, wanted to cut down some trees. He was told that he couldn't cut down the trees because that would adversely affect uh, um, protected salmon in a nearby stream. And so he brought a, a, a takings claim for the value of the trees that he couldn't cut down. And the Federal Circuit said that his claim was not right because he had not yet applied for a permit to uh, cut down the trees legally under the Endangered Species Act, even though the cost of the permit was more than the value of the trees. And, and so the, 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 one of the implied holdings of that is that you can't recoup uh, your, um, the costs to, uh, to ripen your case, so to speak, as part of a, of a taking. Well, one of the clearest property rights cases in recent years was, of course, David Lucas uh, in 1992, uh, which went to the Supreme Court, and his um, regulatory takings case uh, was successfully litigated, but he was not, to the best of my knowledge, able to recoup any of the costs of litigating that case. He did eventually get compensation uh, in excess of what he had paid, but that was simply a representation of the appreciation of the property during the course of litigation. So I think it's a statutory matter, is it not, whether you are under a given statute entitled to recoup the cost of um, prevailing, the cost that required to prevail in a takings case. Okay, next question. Uh, yes, right up there. It's hard to see here with the lights. Uh... I'm Mark Stam. I'm a mortgage banker. Um, uh, this is directed to the panel as a, whoever, whoever wants to answer. Um, what do you see in the future um, uh, as, to, as to what's going to happen to uh, local jurisdictions using eminent domain to confiscate mortgage loans out of mortgage-backed securities? As, as is happening in California and other places. Uh, so this is an issue, as I understand it, it hasn't actually happened yet. Rather, people are proposing laws that if enacted would enable this to happen. So uh, I think different states have very different laws, uh, both with respect to the question of whether such a thing would be for a public use and also with respect to uh, other aspects of this as well. Uh, so under Kilo, uh, this would certainly be permissible under the federal constitution, but many states have interpreted their state constitutions more narrowly. Uh, and also in the aftermath of Kilo, some 44 states have passed eminent domain reform laws. Many of those reform laws, unfortunately, don't actually reform that much, but there's a good many that do. Uh, and so it will vary from state to state. California has very weak eminent domain reform laws post-Kilo. So I think in California, uh, there wouldn't be much legal obstacle to doing this. But I know in some other states where this is being considered, such as Illinois, the legal landscape is uh, more favorable to property owners. 
One of the few things that is more favorable to property owners in Illinois. <laughs> um, well, next, compared to California. Well, yeah, well <laughs> California has long been a basket case. Uh, next, next question. We are almost out of time. No more questions. Oh, oh yes, there's a lady right there. Virginia Albrecht, I'm a lawyer here in Washington. Um, I'm interested in the Sackett case went to the Supreme Court and you sat there and there were nine justices who were obviously shocked at the arguments that the government was making. And yet, for 20 years preceding that, every single lower court, as Damien pointed out, upheld it. The federal government, uh, the all arms of the federal government, had no problems at all with <coughs> saying to themselves, there's no limitation on what we can do in this situation. And I'm wondering what you think about how you can sort of change the culture that accepts that, even though when it's finally presented, everybody looks at it and says, this is wholly wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying? I would say uh, there may have been a sort of a, a, follow, a follow the leader problem in that had the, the first case that, that decided this issue in the, in the courts of appeals was from the Seventh Circuit in the early 1990s, uh, and a case called Hoffman Holmes. And I, I suspect that if that case had gone against EPA, that uh, it, it might have, um, we might have seen just simply a, a flip of, of the precedence. Because I, I think the courts decided, well, uh, we don't want to create circuit splits, and also we're going to buy into EPA's argument that if you allow judicial review, uh, it will hamper our ability to effectively administer the Clean Water Act. And that argument had more force in these earlier cases where you had plaintiffs who argu arguably were, were violating the law and doing so in a way that might have a more significant environmental impact than what the Sacketts were doing. So it may have been just a matter of of, um, of sort of bad luck that the first cases to come along were uh, not particularly attractive plaintiffs or attractive facts. And, uh, but I, I too am, am, am still not quite certain how it is that one can avoid this happening in the future where you have the lower courts consistently and so atrociously wrong and then you have to wait two decades for the Supreme Court to, to clarify. Yeah, I mean, it's related. I think I, this hits the larger problem, which is the federal courts generally assume that we have to make lots of accommodations to the regulatory state in terms of underlying constitutional principles. And this isn't, this isn't a new idea. Uh, Justice Jackson has a famous comment about um, how the administrative state forces us to, to modify a lot of constitutional principles. Um, but I think what's happened is it's become somewhat uncritical. And the assumption is, well, this is just what happens. And in looking at this case, it, it brings to mind a comment that Erwin um, Chemerinsky, who's a dean at, at the law school at University of California at Irvine, often jokes that um, you know something will be a, found to be a Fourth Amendment violation on the Supreme Court if the justices can imagine it happening to them. <laughs> and I think, I think this case, had, there was a similar dynamic, that, that there is just this background assumption that we have, to, we have to make accommodations for the regulatory state. It's difficult. It's messy. It's complicated. These kind of bright-line constitutional rules just don't work, and we just let it go. Um, and, and then one day a case comes along where when people actually look at what's actually happening, they just can't imagine that 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 
that that is occurring. And what I would certainly hope is that maybe the justices' eyes have been open to this and that they realize that Sackett is not a case of a handful of agency bureaucrats going off the rails. It was an example of business as usual in a lot of regulatory agencies. Again, not because these are bad people, but because the regulatory structure that is set up and the incentives it creates encourage good people to treat landowners and property owners and business owners very, very poorly, and uh, like what happened to the Sacketts. And that's, you know, hopefully if they're more aware of that, they, w they, can, they can start to try and bring some of these protections back to the regulatory state. Yeah, so I think it's one quick just no, quick sure saying so it's not just about the regulatory state but also about the attitude towards constitutional property rights from about the 1940s until the 1980s there was a very strong culture among legal elites and jurists that judicial enforcement of property rights with rare exceptions was a bad thing to be avoided it was a way to benefit the rich at the expense of the public or the like or to uh, prevent needed regulation or takings in the modern state that culture was challenged over the last 20 or 30 years in a significant way, uh, but uh, most of the judges still sitting in the lower courts are people old enough that they are the product of that previous generation where that was the overwhelmingly dominant view, and therefore they're very reluctant to engage in significant enforcement of property rights, except when the Supreme Court does really sort of crack the whip and say, okay, you gotta, you know, you gotta do this at least to some extent. Yes, you asked a question about what will be necessary to change the climate of ideas. What we're up against here is the whole progressive movement from the turn of the century, which was institutionalized by the New Deal court, after which there has been a presumption in favor of government because, as we've heard recently, we're all in this together. <laughs> and so with that, uh, let's bring this uh, panel to a conclusion. The next one starts immediately, and let's have a warm round of applause for our panelists. <laughs>